not the introduction. So this week we're going to do a review. Next week I think I'm going to, we're going to have a combined Sunday school. I think we're going to do that for the next several weeks, probably through the rest of July and August we'll do combined Sunday school. Helps give the other Sunday school teachers a little break. And uh, I got have to run it by Pastor Dean first to make sure he's okay with that. And um, I have a couple ideas for topics, but I haven't nailed them down yet, but we'll do something, four or five weeks study on something, and then we'll pick up in September on something new. So that's kind of the plan, uh, but for today we're just going to do some review. Mainly I want to look at some things, just remind you of some things about details on Second Samuel and the books of Samuel, and then talk about, I titled important themes, it's probably more like uh, just lessons we've learned in Samuel, five things I've I guess there are themes and then there are lessons from 2 Samuel, five lessons that I think are important that we learned from 2 Samuel that we can review and take with us uh, this morning as kind of as a review of what we talked about. And then we'll have 2 Samuel wrapped up for our study. So let's go ahead and pray. Ed, do you want to open us up in prayer? Okay. So just a review, and this is probably, if you can remember all the way back to our introduction, some of these things are uh, basically some things we covered, but it's good to remember these things. So the author, remember it's not Samuel who offered First and Second Samuel. Uh, the Jewish tradition attributes the writing to Samuel. This can't be because uh, based on 1 Samuel 25.1, Samuel dies in the middle of 1 Samuel or towards the end of 1 Samuel. So it's kind of impossible then to write written 2 Samuel because he's already dead. So if you can figure out how that would have happened, it's, it's not possible. Um, other traditional authors include the prophets Nathan or Gad. Uh, as we just studied, Gad shows up in the last chapter of 2 Samuel, so it, it could possibly be Gad. Um, 
but the actual author of Samuel is unknown. We don't know who really wrote it as far as from a human standpoint. Uh, the original writings of First and Second Samuel were one book, and in the Hebrew Scriptures, they still are one book. The division of the two books originally originally uh, originated with the Alexandrian translators of the Septuagint, uh, about the fourth century A.D. So that's when we got our English separation was in the the Latin version, about the fourth century A.D. They separated them into First and Second Samuel. So originally, First and Second Samuel were one continuous book, which means that as you read it, even though it seems First Samuel's about Saul and Second Samuel's more about David, it's really kind of the story of David is First and Second Samuel. That's kind of who the focus is on, how David became king, and uh, then you really look at it, and it's really the, the, the kind of the pinnacle of it is the Davidic covenant and showing how God takes David from the sheepfold, makes him the king, and, and gives this promise to David of the future Messiah. And that's, that's kind of what the focus of the book is about. The date of the writing is sometime after 931 B.C. Um, and this is based on references to Judah and Israel being separate kingdoms. So, um, and we see that in a couple of references in 1 Samuel 11, 8, 17, 52, 18, 16. Uh, they see, they, they reference Judah and Israel separate. This wouldn't have happened if it was happening during the time of David or the time of Solomon that um, they wouldn't have separated Judah and Israel so much. Uh, probably before the Babylonian captivity, 586 B.C., uh, first and Second Kings was written during the Babylonian captivity, and since the literary styles of First and Second Samuel are different than that of First and Second Kings, it was probably written at a different time. So they think sometime after the kingdoms divided, but before the Babylonian captivity. Uh, it's most likely written shortly after the dividing of the kingdom, since there is little reference of the decay and ultimate conquest of Israel and Judah. So sometime uh, while Israel was still around, Israel was conquered in 722 B.C., uh, the kingdoms were divided after the reign of Solomon. That was 931, so probably between 931 B.C. and 722 B.C. is probably when it was written. The chronology, chronology of the writing Saul's death was at 1011 B.C. To the time of David's last words of death was 971 B.C., so that's the extent of the book, about 40 years. Second uh, Samuel picks up the story of 1 Samuel immediately after the death of Saul and begins with David's response to Saul's death and covers the reign of David, the second king of Israel. Second official king. I remember uh, it was uh, Gideon who kind of proclaimed himself king for a little while, but wasn't really officially a king. Um, so the second official king of Israel. So important th themes in Second Samuel, and we read through this. One of the biggest things is the establishment of Judah as ruler and the Davidic covenant. And we looked at that in Second Samuel 7. Uh, so sec first and second Samuel are framed by the theme of anointed king. Second uh, Samuel 2:10, we read, "The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, horn of his anointed." Second uh, Samuel 22:51, he is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So you see at the beginning of 1 Samuel and the end of 2 Samuel, it's the idea of the anointed king, that God's going to anoint his king and establish a ruler 
who God will appoint and will anoint and set up as his king. And so there's this idea of an anointed king that God will set up over his land. And then the promise of the Messiah to come through David, we see that in 2 Samuel 7, 12-16, the Davidic covenant. Uh, would someone like to read that for us? Because I want to give you guys a chance for candy. Miriam? So the Davidic covenant, we talked about this a little bit when we uh, discussed it. We did a whole lesson on the Davidic covenant. But it's an extension of the Abrahamic covenant, which we saw in Genesis 15, uh, where God, promise, God promises here in the Davidic covenant that David fame, that uh, he also promises that his seed would rule an everlasting kingdom. He promises safety in the land of Israel. He promises his son will build God's temple and that God will maintain a father-son relationship towards his dynasty. And we see that in uh, verses 9b through 17. Um, the Old Testament confirms the unconditional nature of the Davidic covenant. Um, and that's in 89, Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, and then 19 through 37. As well as the possibility of interruptions in its fulfillment. We see that in Psalm 132, 10 through 12. Even after the Babylonian captivity, Amos offers the hope of a future restoration of the Davidic kingdom in Amos 8. And so we see that uh, the Davidic covenant doesn't mean that David's descendants will consistently, constantly rule over the throne of Israel, but that eventually there will be a king that will rule forever on the throne so that the Davidic covenant can be interrupted, but that God can restore a king at any point in time that he wants to and that God will eventually put a king on the throne of David that will reign forever. Uh, the New Testament points to Christ as the rightful heir to David's throne. Uh, for example, Luke one thirty-two, and shows God will fulfill his promise of a millennial kingdom in his time. Uh, Acts one sixty-eight. remember the disciples are asking, are you going to establish the kingdom now? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time or the the time that God will establish the kingdom, but that you are to go and share the gospel. And then in Revelation 19 and 20, we know that God's going to fulfill that promise to fulfill the millennium kingdom. Um, and then also that his plan will include salvation for the Gentiles, Acts 15, 16 through 17, also in Amos 9, 11 and 12, and Romans 11. So that this millennial kingdom not only will be for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles. In 2 Samuel 7:16, God summarizes the Davidic covenant in three terms, a house, a kingdom, and a throne. These three things were promised to David to endure forever and will be ultimately fulfilled in Christ, namely in the millennial kingdom where Christ, the heir of David's house, will literally reign on David's throne in David's kingdom. And so that's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant given to David. It's a promise, unconditional promise made to David. David doesn't have to do anything on his part to keep that promise is a promise that God makes to David and says that I am going to do this for you. 
uh, that David doesn't have to do anything to keep his side of the promise. There's, no, there's nothing that David can do to break that promise that God says, oops, oh, you're sorry, you sinned. I don't have to fulfill my, my part. God is going to fulfill that promise. And we know, based on further revelation, that that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in his second coming as he returns to earth to establish the throne of David on the earth. And so that, that, that's, that's probably, to me, that's probably the, the biggest thing that comes out of 2 Samuel here is the Davidic covenant. That's, that's the most huge, the most huge, the hugest, I don't know, but what's the right term here? That's the biggest thing that comes out of 2 Samuel to me is this Davidic covenant. That's, that's gigantic here. This is one of the biggest prophecies that we see in this book is concerning the Messiah and the Davidic covenant here. Um, you know, if that's the one thing you take away, what, what's important in Second Samuel? This is like the first thing that should come to mind, the Davidic covenant, that's where this is at. Um, so to me, that's huge. There's other things, obviously, in the book. There's things we can take away from it, but God establishes that. That's a big piece of the puzzle as he looks at his redemptive act and his ultimate plan for the end times as the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel. So any thoughts or questions? And I want to stop there. That's, that's big. Do you guys... You guys get a grasp of that. Do you guys understand this and how this works and fits together? Jonathan says yes, good. So Jonathan's good. That's all that's important. You got any questions? You go to Jonathan. Jonathan has this down. Jonathan's next book is going to be on the Davidic Covenant. No. Jonathan's next book is going to be a sequel. Yep. Okay. Another important theme, I think, is the demonstration of the personal and national effects of sin. So David has, David's, David's apostrophe S should be sin, and 2 Samuel has personal and national consequences. And I think that's important. Um, I, don't, I don't know that everybody always agree with me on this, but whatever you see this, and, and David, we see two big sins in 2 Samuel that the Bible points out. Obviously, David's a sinful person, just like everybody else. We all sin. And David probably had other problems with sin, but there's two big ones that are pointed out in the book. And both of them, there were consequences to his sin. Both of them, he repented. Both of them, he went to God. God restored him, but both of them had consequences, both personally in David's life and, and also affected the people around him and also affected the nation. And... I think that's an important thing to realize is that, you know, we may think, well, if I sin, that's my own business, you know, it doesn't really affect anybody else, but that's just not true. Our sin affects people around us, it affects our church, it affects our community, um, and we need to realize that sin has consequences. And we look at it like David's sin with Bathsheba cost him his three, three sons' lives. It cost him the son that was born between him and Bathsheba. That son died because of sin. It cost him Absalom's life, and it cost him um, uh, what's the other Amnon's life because Absalom killed Amnon. So three of his sons died as a result of this whole thing that went on. It cost him his throne for a period of time, and it divided the nation of Israel. And there were people that died because of the war between David and Absalom, all because of what he did that he sinned against God. And so, and it cost him personal things in his life. Um, you know, he had ten concubines, which, again, you can argue whether or not he should have even had ten concubines, but they, their lives were affected by this also. 
Uh, you, you can go on and on about people that were affected by his sin in this, uh, what went on just because he sinned with Bathsheba at this point. Um, David said number of pe- numbering of people cost the life of 70,000 people in Israel in a three-day plague that went on. You know, so it didn't just affect him. And you, you saw, as we just studied this last week, that he was personally, um, he, he had personal grief and, and, and pain because of what had happened. You know, he, he said, you know, let the sin be upon me and my house. He was, he was devastated by this personally. And so it, it affected him, but it also affected all these people that lost people because of what David had done. However, David, unlike Saul, demonstrates what a heart of repentance looks like. And again, we saw uh, numerous passages where David shows us what a repentant heart. And we're going to look at Psalm 51 in a little bit of detail this morning, uh, just because I think we didn't stop and look at that when we looked at Bathsheba's sin. But um, I think it's important. We see David does have a heart of repentance, and that's, that's something that's different than when Saul sinned. And when he was confronted on it, Saul doesn't seem to repent. Saul just seems to be like, sorry for my actions, but I'm just going to go back to keep doing them. Where David actually seems to have a tender heart before God and, and really does feel sorry for the sin that he committed um, and, and confesses it before God. So that's, that's at least something positive in David's account and something that we can take from David's sin. And like I said, David's not different from us. We all have to deal with the sin in our lives. And we can look at David as an example of, okay, so, yes, you've sinned before God. What do you do with that? Well, you need to be like David, and you need to go to God, confess that, and deal with the sin properly before God. So, so those are a couple important themes, I think, are there. Important lessons, and we'll spend some time on this now. Important lessons from Second Samuel. So, number one. I think we see that God is faithful to do what he has promised. Um, we talked a little bit about that in the song service this morning. Uh, I think David stood on the promises of God. David had to wait approximately 20 years. I think uh, most commentators have between 18 and 22 years from when he was anointed king to when he actually became king. You know, he was, remember his anointing, and then he served Saul, and then he was chased all over the countryside by Saul, dodging spears that were thrown at him by Saul in the palace. He had to wait a long time between when he was anointed and God told him he was going to be king before he became king. Um, And he had at least two occasions where he could have killed Saul himself and become king. And he passed on it saying, you know, he's not going to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. God's going to take care of that for him and he's going to trust God. And Yet God ultimately fulfilled his promise in his time. David even trusted God to work out his promise to David without taking matters into his own hand. And that's why I'm talking about those situations. And I think that's an important lesson from there that we need to trust God in our lives. We need to trust God to work out situations for us. I think sometimes we can work ahead of God. We can do things that aren't right, that aren't aren't the things that God wants us to do because we think that we need to do that in order to move things along instead of trusting God with the situation, instead of praying about it, instead of waiting on God to work, instead of trusting God's faithfulness in the situation. God's a faithful God. God can work things out in his time, and sometimes we have to wait patiently on God. I think David understood this. God is faithful to do what he's promised. 
end, we can trust God to be faithful to work in our lives. And David's just a good example of that, that he, he wasn't rushing God to make him king. He wasn't rushing God, like, God, you just, you anointed me. It's been five years. Why haven't you made me king? David trusting God's faithfulness. He knew that, okay, God has promised to make me king. I'm just going to wait until he does that. Because I believe that God's going to do that at some point in time, and I don't know when. It's up to God to do that. I mean, if God promises you something, you're willing to wait 20 years for him to do it. For most of us, that's hard. Most of us are not willing to wait five minutes if God would promise us something. Right? David waited the 20 years because he knew that God was faithful and he was going to do what he said he was going to do. And I think we need to learn to have that kind of patience in our lives. And so that's, that's a hard thing to do, but God did that for him. So that's, that's, I think, number one important lesson to learn when we first start reading Samuel is look how long David waited and waited for God to act on his behalf. And he was content to do that. So God is faithful to do what he promised. Number two. And we talked about the personal and national effects of sin. While sin has its consequences and God takes sin very seriously, there is mercy and grace with God for those who seek it. God offers his forgiveness for those who have a contrite heart and, work, and are willing to confess their sins to him. Twice David's sin is dealt with in this book, and both times David was forgiven and restored. Even though he had to deal with consequences, both times he was forgiven and both times he was restored. Because he went to God, he asked for forgiveness, and God forgave him and restored him. I think that's very important that God is willing to forgive. God is willing to restore. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, not necessarily take away the consequences of our sins, but he's going to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Right? So God promises that. If we're going to know that God is faithful to do what he promised, we know that all we have to do is go to God and confess that sin to him, and he is faithful and he's just to forgive us of that sin and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness. And so God is in that business of forgiving sins. And this is where I want to talk and look at Psalm 51. This is, this is uh, well, let's read it. Who wants to read this? Nathan, go ahead. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
So the beginning there, the context of this psalm is, of course, after he was confronted by Nathan, the prophet, when he sinned with Bathsheba. And you start off by seeing who he's appealing to. And he's appealing to God. And look at how he appeals to God. He appeals to God according to who God is, according to God's what? His loving kindness, according to his tender mercies. And so he, he understands the character of God, and he's appealing to God's loving kindness or his, his, uh, his, his loving kindness in the Old Testament is kind of that agape-type love. It's, it's, it's your love for me, God. And then according to his mercies, so he, he's appealing to, to God's character here. and saying, I, I know who you are, God. And, and remember, even in the, the last chapter we studied, uh, when he was giving those three choices, remember, he said, let me fall in the hands of God because God is great in mercy, right? He understands who God is. And then he asked God to blot all my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. He understands what his need is, that I have the sin before God and I need... I need that sin taken care of before God. So I'm going to the merciful, loving, kindness type of God, and I need to have my sin taken care of. Um, and he says, I need a cleanse. In verse 3, this is the, the confession part here. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Verse 4 says, Against you and you only I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, did he only sin against God? No. He sinned against Bathsheba, right? He sinned against Uriah. In a sense, he sinned against the nation because he's the king and he's supposed to uphold righteousness before the nation. So he, he did kind of sin against the whole nation as their king. But, but ultimately, your sin is before God. You're transgressing his law. And so in a technical sense, he's correct here. You know, he's answerable before God. And the ultimate forgiveness he needs here is before God. And so he's coming before God because he knows that that's where he needs to go for forgiveness is before God. So he's done this evil in your sight. And, and he, now he's acknowledging God's 
perfection and that God is the perfect judge here, that, be, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. God is the perfect judge because God is perfect and holy and he knows that when he comes to your God and says, I'm a sinner, God can say, yes, you are <laughs> because God is perfect and he can judge that. Um, Verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin my mother conceived me. Now, this is not to say that his mother did something wrong when he was conceived, okay? This is to say that he was born a sinner. The sin nature came as part of the package as he was born. He's born a sinful man. He was born with that sin nature. He's, you know, that's who he is as a human being. He can't escape from that. We're all born with that sin nature. We're born naturally a sinner. And so he's saying that that there's, there's no excuse for that, that even without any sinful action, he's already has that sin in him. But that God, verse 6, desires truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts he will make me know wisdom. And so verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. And so he's asking God again for, to cleanse him. And, and kind of going back to the first John passage, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's kind of that same idea there. Not only forgive me, God, but cleanse me from that sin. Wash me, clean me, get that sin out of me. That's what David desires here. Um, make me hear joy and glad, gladness that my bones may, that, that you have broken may rejoice. And so here's the idea that he's broken in his sin. He understands what he has done before God. And he, he's, he, he's, he's seen his sin as God sees it, at least in part, in part here, that his bones have been broken before God. Um, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. So this is this restoration process that Dave is begging for. He knows that he sinned and offended a holy God, but he wants that, that, that relationship restored with God. He asks, do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And this is this Old Testament concept, because remember, the Holy Spirit was not a permanent indwelling in Old Testament saints, but the Holy Spirit could come and go. And so David was begging for God not to lose that presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. Because he, he saw Saul's life and, and saw that Saul at times had the Holy Spirit and then the Holy Spirit departed from Saul and that evil spirit came into Saul and David was like, I don't want that. I want your Holy Spirit to be with me. I, I've experienced the presence of your Holy Spirit, God, and I don't want that to leave me. So he's asking for that there. Um, and then he asks to restore the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. So... He knows that there's joy in, in doing what's right and having that presence of God in his life. And he's lost that through his sin. And then verses 13 going on, he, he talks about how he's going to respond once he's forgiven, once he's restored, that he's going to, going to sing God's praises. He's going to teach other people and, and even Gentiles God's way and, and, and how as he's restored and as he's forgiven, that affects the way his life is lived out. And so just an amazing psalm of what a contrite heart and what looks like and how someone who really acknowledges their sin and understands how their sin looks like before God and really wants to repent and, and turn back to God. This is what this looks like. This is a good psalm for us. And even though there's, again, like, the, take God, your Holy Spirit from me, we don't have to pray that. God's Spirit permanently indwells the, the believer. But 
you look at this and the attitude and the idea of what a contrite heart looks like, this is what it looks like. This is what someone who's, who's really burdened by their sin and, and really says, God, I, 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 I've hurt you. I've sinned against you. I, I want to be forgiven. This is what it looks like. It's just an amazing psalm that David wrote. And again, I'm not saying that David should have ever sinned against Bathsheba, but, but the result of it, that what we have here is just, just a great look at a, a broken heart before God, broken because of their sin, and that's someone that wants to be restored before God. This is what we got out of that. So um, God used that to have David pen this psalm, and, and we get a glimpse of what David's heart is. So God's in the business of forgiveness. God's in the business of um, healing those hearts that are contrite and broken before him. And we need to remember that, that yes, you know, as John writes in 1 John, he writes these things that we may not sin, but when we sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation for our sin. And so we can go to God and we can have that forgiveness. We can have uh, that relationship restored before God as we confess our sins and and God's ready to do that. That's an important lesson I think we learn as we look at David's life. So let's go to the last page here. I think another important lesson is that God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms. Um, he is the one who puts author- all authority in his place and he's made us subject to the, that authority, uh, whether or not that authority honors him or not. And I, I'm looking at both books, First and Second Samuel here. David was both that authority and subject to both Saul and others who usurped that authority. Uh, yet David trusted God's sovereignty and subjected himself to authority when necessary. And I'm thinking, you know, look at First Samuel, David was under Saul's authority a number of times. And, and um, there are times where, again, David had the chance to kill Saul, and David said, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And the idea God put that authority in place, and David's not going to do something against that authority that God anointed and appointed in place. Even when Absalom took the throne, uh, remember there was that one conversation David had about, um, you know, if God restores me to the throne, great, and if not, I'm in the Lord's hands, and God can do what he will. And it's almost like David accepted the idea that God put his son in the kingship over him, and that I'm going to wait for God to work out the situation and trust God, he set up the throne, and he gave my throne to my son as part of his punishment, and if God's going to put me back in place, then God's in control of that authority, and David's almost accepted that, um, that God, God's authority over that. And then you have other places where you see David is the king, and he's, he's accepted that God's put him in place, but he's also understands, uh, maybe I'll read a little more because I think I said this, um, David also said that when he was in charge that he was placed there to be God's servant, uh, to lead and serve God's people as authority over them. And I'm thinking there, and I, I wasn't able to locate the passage, but there's a passage where David talks about where um, he's there to serve God's people and to be God's leader over the people. And it, it kind of makes it clear as he talks about the people that God gave him this position to serve God's people, that he's, he's there to serve Israel. He's there to be God's representative to Israel. And you see that over and over in 2 Samuel, that David's not... David, David kind of has this idea that I'm not here to be the, 
the despot over Israel. I'm here to be God's servant over his people, to shepherd his people. And David understands where his authority comes from. And so it reminded me of Romans 13, probably a familiar passage. Who would like to read Romans 13? Abigail, go ahead. So Romans 1 starts out, let every soul be subject to governing authorities. It doesn't say to godly governing authorities. It doesn't say to good governing authorities. It just says the governing authorities. And it gives a reason. There is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Um, when you look at the, the trials, the trial accounts of Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus subjected himself to the governing authorities of Rome, even though, um, even though they had no case against him, he had done nothing wrong. Um, the only time he really speaks up is that Pilate says something about, do you know who I am and what power I have that I can release you or I can condemn you? And Jesus says uh, something basically along the lines of, if I know where your power comes from, that your power basically comes from God, is a, if I'm paraphrasing here. Um, so he basically tells them that your, your power comes from above. Um, but he subjects himself to that, even though Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is God himself. He still subjects himself to those authorities. And so Jesus himself even knows where the authority comes from. Uh, there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So why do we subject ourselves to authorities, even though, especially nowadays, most of the authorities don't even really acknowledge God, or if they do, they only acknowledge it in word and not really in heart or in deed? Well, it's because the authorities are still appointed by God, and the authority still comes from God, and we still subject ourselves to those authorities. Verse 2 says, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So that's pretty strong language. If we resist the authorities that are over us, we're resisting the ordinances of God. So that's a good reason for us to still subject ourselves to those authorities. And God goes on to say here that rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authorities? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So if you subject yourself to authority and you do what the authority tells you to do, basically you're, you're going to be in good standing with them. You'll have praise from them. Um, 
he's God's minister to you for, for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So if you, you resist the authority, you, you disobey the authority, you're going to get punished for it, is basically what he's saying. For he's God's minister, avenger, to execute, execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, not only because you could get punished, but for conscience' sake. Then verse 6, everybody's favorite verse, of course, for the, because of this, you also pay taxes. So guess what? You get to pay taxes. So there's not an excuse not to pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, all their due taxes, to whom tax their due customs, your customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, you know, from reading through Acts, I would understand that if the authorities are telling me that I can't go to church or I can't read my Bible or I can't share the gospel or I can't worship God, that in that case, God's authority is higher than the human authority and that I need to obey God's authority and suffer the consequences of whatever the human authority says in that case. So, so there are exceptions to that. But if the human authority is telling me that I can't drive over 35 miles per hour, I shouldn't go over 50 miles per hour and say, well, God never told me that I can't drive faster, that there's no reason for me not to obey the speed limit. Or, you know, if the, the human authority says for some reason that the curfew's at 11, that therefore then I'm find my way home before 11 and stay home because there's really no reason that I should say I'm going to resist the curfew because that's wrong. Um, you know, there's stuff like that. And you remember in the Roman times, we have laws pretty lenient. The Roman laws were much more strict back then. And Paul's saying you, you still obey the Roman laws as long as they don't conflict with what God's telling you to do. So... David seems to understand authority very well as he not only respected the authority that was over him, but also punished those who did not respect the authority over them, usually with death. When they went around saying they killed Saul or they killed Saul's sons or whoever was in power, he really didn't take that very well. So um, God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms, and we need to remember that. So, did God allow Joe Biden to be in charge of our country? Yes. Does that mean that God's pleased with what Joe Biden's doing? No, but he allowed that authority to be in place. So, um, we accept that and we understand that. Another uh, lesson I think, many times God used some people to judge others. Um, a lot of times there were nations. God, and I'm reading through Judges in my Bible reading right now, and... Um, it's interesting because in Joshua, God says, go in and drive all these nations out of Israel and take the land. Israel didn't do that, and you go, well, Israel failed, they disobeyed. And then in Judges, you read, well, God left these nations in here to test Israel. And you're like, okay, Israel disobeyed, but God used the nations that were left to test Israel to see if they would obey his commands or not. And God used these nations because Israel didn't obey. They worshiped idols. And then God would use these nations to uh, conquer or harass Israel or put them into slavery and stuff like that so that Israel would be punished for disobeying God. But that doesn't mean that God was pleased with these nations. He was using them in order to test Israel. So may God, many times God used some people to judge others. And in this case, Absalom's a big example. Absalom was used to judge David, for example. Um, 
but God used the Philistines at times here. He used Moab. Um, well, God used their, the actions of these men to bring about his will. God did not condone or take pleasure in their actions. God can use sinful men to bring about his will without justifying their sin. And each person is responsible for the actions before God. I think mainly of Absalom here, that God used Absalom to judge David for his sin, but that doesn't mean that God was pleased with what Absalom did. Absalom is still responsible for his actions. So um, you might come under persecution or judgment or something by some unsaved, sinful person who's persecuting you, who's taking advantage of you, who's profiting because of something they're doing to you. You might say, well, why is God blessing them? That doesn't necessarily mean God's blessing them or condoning what they're doing. But God may be using that person to accomplish his will in you by growing you or by showing you, hey, you need to get right with God or something like that. It doesn't mean that he's proud of what they're doing. But he still may be using them to accomplish his will in you. And that's sometimes a hard concept to get, but you look at this passage, Absalom was very much not doing what God wanted him to do. But God was still using him to work in David's life to accomplish what God wanted to do in David's life. And another example, and this is outside the book of 2 Samuel, is Pharaoh in Egypt. God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to persecute Israel in order that he could accomplish what he wanted to do in Israel. And actually, God hardened Pharaoh's heart to even pursue Israel to the Red Sea so that he could destroy Pharaoh and his army. doesn't mean that God wanted Pharaoh to do that or that God was pleased with Pharaoh's actions, but that's what God did in Pharaoh's life in order to accomplish God's will for Israel. And it's, it's a hard concept to get sometimes because... We don't always understand it, but that's what God is doing. So each person is responsible for their actions before God, even though God is using those sinful people to accomplish his will. It doesn't make their sinful actions right. So does that make sense? I find it sometimes a difficult concept. It doesn't mean that Absalom was doing exactly what God wanted him to do, even though God was using Absalom's actions to accomplish what he wanted in David's life. So last thing I got here. At times, David was surrounded by ungodly men, men who gave him ungodly advice to follow. Joab is a big example of that, but there were others. Yet David, for the most part, chose to obey God and seek to do God's will in his life. Circumstances in our lives do not dictate how we respond to them. Just because you're getting bad advice from people or just because things are going bad in your life doesn't mean you get to make bad decisions. Just because somebody is telling you to do something this way and or everybody's telling you to do something this way doesn't mean you can just go ahead and say, well, this is what everybody's telling me to do. i got to do it this way. Or i got a lot of peer pressure. Or this seems to be the only way. No. Those circumstances don't dictate how you react. What dictates how you react is the word of God. And we need to obey that. We are always to respond in obedience to God's word in our life regardless what is going on around us or regardless of who's giving us input or regardless of what we're being told. The word of God needs to be what's dictating what's going on in our life. David was given all kinds of bad advice in his life. David was surrounded with all kinds of bad circumstances in his life. And a good majority of the time, David responded in the right way, seeking to do what God wanted him to do. And 
David sought to please the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. He sought to do what the Lord wanted him to do. And for us, we need to be careful that we're not responding to our circumstances, that we're not responding to what others are telling us to do, which might not be what the Word of God tells us to do, or that we're not listening to to peer pressure, or we're not listening to what the consensus is in our life, but that we're responding to what the Word of God tells us to do in our life. That needs to be that needs to be our guide and our direction in our life is what God's word tells us to do. And if we're not sure, we need to go to people who have studied God's word and know God's word and say, what does God's word tell us to do if we're not sure what God's word tells us to do in this situation? And so we just need to be careful that we can be very easily thrown aside and by people who are giving us bad advice to follow, or we can be very easily just responding to situations and saying this seems right in the situation I need to do this and it's the wrong thing to do because we're not checking with God's word. We're not responding correctly according to what God's word tells us to respond. And so I think David, you know, again, David's not perfect, but in a lot of ways, you know, people would say, you know, let's go and let's go and kill this guy for saying this and didn't know this is not what we're going to do. We're going to do what God wants us to do in this situation. David will respond correctly according to God's word. And um, he, had, he had his nephews especially who were constantly wanting to kill people or respond in violence to people. And David would say, no, we're not going to do that. There's been enough bloodshed. We're going to do what God wants us to do in this situation. So um, circumstances don't dictate it. Consensus doesn't dictate it. We need to be careful who we're listening to. We need to be careful the advice we're taking. God's word needs to dictate how we respond in our lives. So, okay, any thoughts, questions, comments? These are just five things I thought of that as I'm thinking through what we taught in the book of Second Samuel that stuck out to me. There might be other things in here that you thought of that here's a lesson I learned um, that you might want to share. I'm giving you the opportunity now to think of something that, oh, yeah, this really stuck out to me in the book. What, what, and, this is the opportunity to share that if you want to share that with the class. So, Ed, go ahead.
Mm-hmm. Yep, so, so verses that remind me, um, and, and these are ones we quote a lot, but the, the one we read this morning, Second Peter chapter 1, where it talks about we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. Um, that's talking about what God has given us through his prophecy, through his word. And then, of course, uh, it's Second uh, Timothy 3, where the word of God um, is uh, um, given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Um, that, that gives us, that tells me that we have everything we need to know what God's will is for us and how we're to live. Um, and even we talked about a couple of Wednesday nights ago when we talked about wisdom, that Christ is our wisdom. Um, by knowing Christ, we have wisdom we need for life. So it, it, it's, um, there should be, there should be nothing in our life that we can't figure out if we're knowing and studying God's word. Um, again, doesn't mean that every decision is going to be easy. Not necessarily. Sometimes we're still going to have to struggle through and make decisions. But we we have we have the mind of Christ in us. So yes. between that, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God, God should be able to help us through those decisions and making wise decisions in our life. So yeah. So that's I'm convinced if the Word of God is true. And I say if, being I believe, I believe with my whole heart the word of God is true, that we have everything that we need to know what God's will is for us and, and that we can make wise decisions in our life. Too often we depend on our own knowledge or our own feelings or, or we just make rash decisions and that's what gets us into trouble. So, any other thoughts? Lynn, go ahead. That's good. We, 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 we don't praise God enough for things, I think. I think too often we take for granted the good things that are happening in our lives and we need to acknowledge God in them and uh, give him praise for what's going on. Good. Anybody else? Lynn, why don't you close us in prayer today?